Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You have probably over the last little while, if you pay any attention to the news at all, you have heard Pierre Polyev as one of his talking points, as one of the things that he is drumming home about the Trudeau government. He has been saying Canada's broken. Everything feels broken. You've heard this, right? I know you've heard this. Well, my next guest um, also heard this, and he works for a polling company and decided to find out if people agree with the idea that everything is broken. Are we angry that Canada is falling apart, or is that simply a Pierre Polyev talking point that's gaining no traction and people are looking at him like he's got two heads? Let me bring in Andrew Enns from uh, Leger, uh, who joins us now. Andrew, thanks for doing this, and I really appreciate it. Hi, Scott. Uh, I'm chuckling over the two heads here, but uh, great to be on your program. Well, I, I do appreciate And, you know, sometimes politicians will find this talking point that nobody seems to latch on to. And eventually people do say, what are you talking about? But based on what you found here, that doesn't seem to be the case with Pierre Polyev. He seems to have got some traction on this one. Yeah, I, I, uh, I would agree. And in fact, uh, you know, I think when, I don't know when he started using that, but uh, I think maybe he heard it from a few people uh, anecdotally on his travels and talking to, to Canadians, and he uh, he co-opted, uh, you know, I think the sentiment was out there in front of him, and, and he's, I guess he's capitalizing a little bit on it, And but it's but it's real. Two-thirds of Canadians uh, feel things currently in the country aren't, uh, aren't going very well. The fact that... Um... So the net number that are angry, who say they're angry, according to your poll, is 50%. So h- half of the country, you know, some might say, well, that's only half the country. I don't know that people feel it's broken then. If you hit any mark in the country that's got 50%, is that something to take note of? Or is that something to say, no, it's really not that overwhelming a number? I I think it's something to take note of. And, and I'll, I'll point in just something else within that question that you referenced, Scott, in our in our poll, like we asked people, you know, how would you identify yourself in terms of anger or being angry or being happy? And we had options, very happy and very angry, uh, you know, in addition to sort of somewhat happy and somewhat, somewhat angry. 4% of Canadians said they were very happy. 20% of Canadians said they were very angry. And sure, 20%, it's just a minority, but it's not it's not a small, I would say a small minority and, and very angry people tend not to be really good people at, at listening to, you know, to, to decision makers in terms of trying to explain what they're going to do. I mean, it, it's not a good frame of mind. And I think that, that to me is a little bit troubling in terms of a, of a finding. And, and, uh, I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's super healthy right now. And, and, um, Hopefully that, that number diminishes, uh, you know, as we go on. It, but you, is 19% of that 20% not just all in Saskatchewan and Alberta? So, so everybody out there says, I'm very angry, and that skews the number. Well, there's a, look, there's a little bit on the anger question. Western Canada tends to be a little bit more angry than Eastern Canada. But, but Scott, there's a number across the country uh, that, uh, that says that they're... Uh, they're very angry, and I think that's the uh, you know that needs to be sort of uh, you know taken into account. Um, you know, it's it, it's not just look Western Canadians, in particular Albertans and and uh, and Saskatchewan folks. I mean, there's a lot of issues around energy that they butt heads with uh, you know with the government in Ottawa. But I would also say that that some of that anger 
is about healthcare. And I, as far as I can tell, I don't think Western Canadian healthcare is any better or worse than Eastern Canadian healthcare. And so there's, there's things to be uh, angry about uh, across this country. The one thing, and again, we knew, I, I think we would have all expected that maybe the West, well, not maybe, that the West would have had a higher level of anger. We know what's been going on. But the one that really caught me off guard in your poll here is when you look at the net of angry, whether it's very angry or angry or a little angry or ticked off or whatever other categories you want to have, more women than men fall into that category. I was sure that we would have seen more men saying they were angry than women. Oh, you you and I uh, think a bit alike on that front, because that's what I expected, too. I sort of was the, I mean, I honestly, when we were chatting about in our group, the angry, uh, you know, the angry male out of Alberta kind of thing, and, and we, we got a surprise, uh, women. But but again, I touched on health care as being a bit of a sore point right now for Canadians, and, and we, we saw that in our poll. But the other issue that's a sore point for Canadians is affordability. And that's an issue, that's an issue that touches... You know, a lot of a, a lot of uh, women, a lot of female heads of households, they're you know they're doing you know in charge of some of the shopping and looking after kids. I mean, I'm not trying to be uh, you know sexist here in any way, but that's in our polling we see still that there's an acuteness there, and those are these are tough issues, and 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 some of that I think is is being reflected in our poll that that women uh, female respondents. Uh, we're more angry, uh, and also we're more likely to say things in the country feel broken. Nah, maybe not surprised because you just talked about affordability. That's such a big one right now, and jobs and houses and everything else. So looking at, again, the net angry, uh, again, I thought maybe older people angrier. I'm not sure why I would have thought that, um, but it's pretty even, including right down to the like 18 to 34, which... Uh, you know, I don't know whether I thought they were going to be angry or not, but they, they seem to be. Well, yeah, and I think, and that one's a bit more, I'd say a bit more of a of, of a puzzle, but one of the things that I think about when I was, and go, I have to stretch back a few number of years to when I was sort of in my, uh, you know, mid-20s, early 30s, and, you know, there are some big decisions that you're embarking on at that time. You might be getting married, you might be setting up your own household, you might be looking at buying a house and again this isn't something that just happened a few months ago we've been we've been hearing about this over the course of several years but but the affordability to sort of get out on your own and 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 set up your own household with your own property that your own is becoming a lot harder for people and you know potentially uh potentially that's uh you know contributing to sort of this that generation's feeling that you know this isn't good. I mean, we've heard sometimes that that this generation is starting to look at that older generation saying, hey, man, you've kind of wrecked it for us. Like by the time, you know, it's kind of our turn and, and the rules are changing now. Like I'm, I, I don't get to buy a house apparently. Uh, and maybe there's a, there's a, a there's a bit of that uh, permeating through these numbers. So does your numbers break down? Because it's an interesting thing you just raised. It says angry, but it doesn't necessarily say that I saw who... <clears throat> at whom they are angry. Are the younger people angry at the government or are they angry at the older people? No, we didn't get into that. And I think that's a really interesting, uh, you know, kind of a really interesting, uh, you know, place to do a bit more, a bit more research into. You know, what we did is we did identify sort of, uh, um, 
we identified what issues are important to Canadians, and then we flipped that question around and asked them what they thought uh, the provincial and federal governments were most focused on. And we wanted to sort of what we saw is a bit of a disconnect that that the, that the issues Canadians feel most passionately about in terms of importance aren't always the ones that their uh, their governments are focused on. But we didn't go any further uh, beyond that, uh, Scott. Last thing here, then, what from your experience with these, once you get I don't know if we can call it critical mass, but a, a significant number of people who are getting very angry or even angry. How often can a government turn that around then and win them back? Because I, I, I wonder if once you've once you've got people not loving you anymore, if it's if it's an easy task to rein them back in, even if it's even if you're offering stuff or giving things away or fixing things, or is the love lost and now it's sort of gone? Well, I think. Um well, first of all, like short answer, I think it is a challenge, um, you know, for sure. Although it, it's not impossible, and I will say that because, um, you know, certainly uh, governments can sour with with the general public and with voters, and that might be sort of happening here with uh, with potentially some governments. But there's always still that there's always still that moment where they will take a hard look at what that replacement option looks like. And that replacement option has to at least look attractive enough uh, that it's not, you know, it doesn't appear risky. Uh, it appears that they seem, they seem to have some good ideas. They have a plan. Um, they don't have to have right down to the, you know, right down to the, all, the, all the dot I's, the T's and everything. But they have to have a good, some, some structure. And I think then it gets, you know, governments can have a hard time turning around this momentum. But... Um, but it also takes time. And so you do want to start to, you know, you don't want to leave that for uh, 35 days in an election campaign. Mm. You need to start working at that well in advance if, uh, if, if that's the, uh, if that's on the horizon. It is, uh, it is a poll that is well worth taking a look at. You can find it online. It's, uh, is Canada broken? It's by Leger. Uh, you can find it. It's not hard to find online. Andrew Enns, uh, vice president with Leger uh, with us. Andrew, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. Well, appreciate the conversation, Scott. Have a good rest of your uh, program. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Last segment, we were talking about a political catchphrase that you probably had heard something about. Now we're going to talk about a a software program that probably if you've been following the news or listening anywhere in the last little while, you've heard something about that is something called ChatGPT. Two weeks ago, almost for sure, you would have never heard of this. Now, everybody seems to be aware of it. It is an artificial intelligence program, a system, a software that will write stories, essays, programs, whatever. Um, and the, the catch here, the challenge here is that unlike a lot of other software programs where it just simply grabs chunks of stuff off line. It'll somehow search itself. So teachers, for example, could search and literally other programs are lifting sentences. So you could do a search and find that it was plagiarized. This one is, it's actually writing it. It's artificial intelligence. It's become a very real issue for educators, university all the way down. Brian Daly is the principal of St. Thomas More Catholic Secondary School here in town. I have no doubt that this will be something that his school and all the other schools in town are going to have to deal with at some point. He joins me now. Brian, how are you tonight? 
I'm good. How are you, Scott? I'm terrific. Is this something that um, in the last couple of weeks when it's really become aware to everybody, is this something teachers have been talking about? It's definitely a topic of conversation around schools and around anybody who's in education, for sure. Uh, it's pretty amazing technology, but uh, we are aware of the potential problems it proposes. Yeah, any, any technology, you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Every technology can be used for good or for evil. And I don't know if evil is too strong a word, but if you're an educator, it might be. Because how do you possibly now, assuming that now every kid is going to know about this too, Brian, we're not, we're not, nothing's hidden under a bushel. How do you send home, if you're a, say, a grade 10 history teacher, an assignment to write a paper on whatever and have it come back and know that the student actually wrote it? Well, therein lies the problem because I don't think you're going to be able to. Now, some of these uh, AI programs, ChatGPT is one of them. They recently released a sort of detector type software. But even that's going to have like some error built in, so you'll never know for sure. Uh, and, and that's just one iteration of the program. Google has it coming out on Tuesday, I think, and Microsoft has it coming out. So that's just something we're going to have to tackle. I mean, maybe the answer is, is not to try to tackle your question, but maybe that assignment needs to be done in class and maybe other work needs to be done at home. It's very new, Scott, so to say we have a well-thought-out plan at this point would be premature, but we understand it's a major problem looming. No, and absolutely, and, and as I say, like I don't think anybody other than a few folks in that industry, I don't think anyone until, Brian, until two or three weeks ago had even heard about this thing, and now all of a sudden, as I say, they've got uh, uh, an MBA exam down in the States. Uh, it, it did very well. They used the, this program, and it did very well on an MBA exam. It's passed a law school exam. A judge down in the States just wrote a judgment, or didn't he didn't write it. The thing wrote it for him. I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing that if something can be this good and this indistinguishable from someone writing it, how you find it. I, maybe that, maybe I, I'm, I'm rambling here, but maybe that's the answer. Maybe you have to look at what the kids have written before and go, that's way better than you could have written. I know you're cheating. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good luck selling that to the parent when you, when you punish them, but that's probably not going to happen. But, um, you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about, they tend to have process built in. Uh, so like big essays in an English class, uh, English teachers already build marks in for process. And I think, I think really what we have to do is inspire people and not really to go that shortcut route. Because ultimately, if you're academically dishonest, you'll end up being the loser, whether that be when you have to write it on a, when you have to write a similar type thing on a final exam, or whether you're in post-secondary or whether you're in professional life. If you can't do something, it's going to come out and it's going to hurt you. So, I mean, really, we're, we're in schools, we're teachers, you have an expert there, learn how to write the right way rather than look for a shortcut. What so would be, it will be tough. Brian, what would be the response? And again, you deal with parents, all right? So you know what the, and kids, you know what the response is going to be. If, if a kid hands in an essay and part of the process now was to say, I, as a teacher, am going to ask you certain things. I'm going to challenge your essay, assuming that you cheated. And not just you, but everybody in the class. You are going to have to prove to me by your knowledge, orally, that you wrote this. Would, would parents be okay with that, do you think? Or do you think they would think, oh, no, you teachers are just assuming my kid cheated? 
Well, I mean, to be honest, probably not. But I think that I think the answer has to be somewhere somewhere different, where the final product perhaps is being written in the classroom under the teacher's supervision. You know, literacy literacy is reading, it's writing, and it's speaking. It's all three of those things. And if you short if you take a shortcut on one of the three, uh, the other two are going to suffer. So I really hope that parents and students would see the big picture and just you know. Maybe there's a use for this tool that's positive, but in a school, I can't really find it, to be honest. You know, people worry about their marks, but ultimately, the marks are not that important until the end of high school, and the learning is far more important. How could you find the time? Because, I I mean, I think a lot of people would agree your idea of, okay, now you've got to write your essay in class, and we're going to give you five classes or something to, to do this. How can you make that work with all the stuff that you still have to teach within the classes that you have, it seems like that would be a challenge. Well, yeah, but, you know, if you're, if you're doing a major writing assignment, you know, you, maybe you might be thinking back to when you're in high school or you might have, you know, tests and assignments, but a major writing assignment is a big chunk of the course. So it, it's, it's appropriate to dedicate some class time to that. Um, again, I, I reiterate that big writing assignments tend to have process built in. So, and these things have to be handed in. So, if process, if the process doesn't align with the final product, you know, there's a big red flag. But I think it's perhaps, I mean, I, we're going to have to take them, really get together as an education community, both um, high schools and post-secondary, and figure out a way that we can, you know, maintain our academic um, purity and our, our academic mm. integrity uh, while tackling these, these tools that probably will keep popping up. I mean, it's a cat and mouse game. Um, but ultimately, I would hope that the vast majority of students would just stay away and do their work the right way, because ultimately, they're going to need to write in real life. It's mm-hmm. probably the most important skill you can learn in high school, um, and to figure out a way to shortchange it just so you can you know, hang out on TikTok and spend more time with your friends. <laughs> Probably not a good See, uh, long-term this is, plan. This is a man who hangs around at schools and knows how kids think. Um, just before I let you go... If you were, and I know it's tricky, but if somehow you or a teacher was able to establish that something that a student hands in was done with this program, as far as you're concerned, is that academic cheating? Well, that's definitely academic dishonesty for sure. And, you know, and then you have to deal with the student. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be in a certain uh, ultra harsh way, but it has to be. A, and there's an education piece there. You know, if you're being academically, look in, in society what happens when people are dishonest academically like people lose their doctorates major things happen uh if you're academically dishonest even if it's detected long after the fact so you know getting back to the parent thing uh, I, for me it would just be like look here's what we think here's why we think it and present it to the parent and, and i think most parents are supportive most parents also want the best for their children and if their children are being academically dishonest parents want that corrected and hopefully we can mm. do that, you know, at a time in their school career that doesn't really damage them long term. But that lesson needs to be taught because academic dishonesty is, is not, it's dishonesty. Yeah. And I don't want to be the not one. Long term plan. I don't want to be the one if I'm a student or uh, have my kid, if I'm the parent, uh, to be the one who's the uh, the scapegoat here or whatever you want to call it. But I got to tell you, I think if, 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 if this happened one time, and the school absolutely hammered a kid one time for cheating, I bet that would get around. I bet the, 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 the story would get around school, you better not do this. It probably would. 
it probably would. But the the people who would do this it would be kind of an act of desperation. You know, it's seven o'clock in the morning. They forgot about it. Somebody that were to do that, this is not going to be a a well executed plan. Hmm. This is going to be something they threw together at the last minute because they forgot about their assignment. So, you know, it, it's just a it's it's interesting. You have to respect the technology because it's actually pretty amazing. It is. You have to shudder at the thought of what it could do to our high schools and, and our academic institutions in general. Brian Daly, principal of St. Thomas More. Really appreciate the time today, Brian. Thanks for doing Thank this. Thank you, Scott. Have a good one. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know if, uh, if Don Robertson knows his Starbucks coffee sizes. I think if I said what size lager comes between extra large and super extra large. He, he, he might know that one better, although it would be a tea that he would be ordered, correct, Don? It would be a tea that you'd be ordering at that size? Yeah, and you can get them in various sizes. Uh, I'm not a Starbucks guy, so I would, uh, I would struggle with that question. Well, I wouldn't be able to answer it. <laughs> Well, that is, I'm, I'm sure some will, because uh, every time I go into the Starbucks near our house, which is not all that often, it is always full. They are, uh, whatever they're doing, they are, uh, they're doing it well. Let's put it that way. Uh, Don, did you happen to um, watch any of the All-Star festivities on the weekend? NHL All-Star I, festivities? I did, and, and for one main reason, assuming you would ask. And? Um... It's like when Fonzie jumped the shark in Happy Days. <laughs> That's a great analogy. Uh, um, yeah. Pink pink and aqua sweaters, Lally gagging around on a three-on-three. I mean, they're skilled, right? But, um, yeah, it's, it's, but, you know, it's not, it's not, the NHL don't have the market cornered on how to do an all-star game. The Nobody only all-star does. game, I think we talk about it every year. Baseball's not bad. You got to throw it. The pitchers are still going to throw it 100 miles an hour, right, or 90 miles an hour. But it's, uh, yeah. And I said to Ben, as I called him, I said, I'm waiting for next year when they try surfing in the Toronto Harbor. That will pick the men from the boys to see who's tough enough to try and pull that off. Yeah, it is in Toronto next year. And I got to tell you, I, um, even if somebody offered me a ticket, I would say no. If someone offered me a free ticket to the All-Star Game next year in Toronto, I would say no. If it's and, and Unless it's so completely over or like redone from what we saw on the weekend. I, I, I was in and out on this one, Don, because honestly, it was... It was unwatchable. It was like what it was. It was like watching "Dude, Where's My Car?" twelve times in a row, it, like that bad. It was just. It, I, I don't know who comes up with this stuff, but it was just. It was not entertaining. It wasn't watchable. It wasn't fun. It, it was the only word I kept coming up with was "This is stupid." This is stupid. Yeah. So I never watched any more than about eight minutes of it. Uh. I don't think three times, I think twice, just presuming that we would uh, chat about it and I consider it work. Um, But I don't think, and you're now starting to show your age, that they're trying to impress you and I. I think they want, you know, 16 to 25-year-olds to like it. Uh, We are not part of their demographic that they're trying to lure to the sport at... at, uh, 
once you get to a certain age, you've likely picked your sport. And I think that ESPN, who now have the American rights back, and some deep thinkers have said, we have to spice this up for the kids. Because nobody uh, that I have talked to or heard talk about over the age of 25 I haven't talked to anybody under that, but like even mid twenties, that they said, "Well, this is a bit stupid." But anybody over forty thought it was ridiculous. So you know, they, they we're not in the target market, so they don't care if we like it. Yeah, I, that's my only explanation. So explanation. So then, Don, go after the really young kids and do like Nickelodeon or something, and have slime involved or whatever else. It just it. I, I don't think that I, I don't even think you would be respecting a 25 year old with this one. I don't think there's a 25 year old who looked at that and went, oh, this is hilarious. This is so much fun. And, and I'll tell you one of the other reasons why I, I'm so down on it. Besides the stupid um, events and everything else, w- when did it become entirely uncool to try at something? Oh, I know. No, no, I, I did watch a little bit of the three-on-three, three and I'll tell you, when the McCoy scrimmage on a Wednesday night, the effort level is like five times more than that, and they're not going all out. I, I don't understand. Was, I just don't understand. Like, if you are being chosen to go to an all-star game because you are one of the best players, and your response to going to this is to say, okay, I'm one of the best players, so I am intentionally going to be as bad as I can. That seems to me to defeat the entire purpose of the whole exercise. Why not then choose not all-stars, choose a bunch of people who want to go and really want to try to make a name for themselves? It would be way more interesting. Yeah, I don't know if it's an they want to put on a bad show, but what lack of effort is what you get. You get a bad show. Yeah. And And... and it's so interesting to me that these players, I, I guarantee you, from the first day they put on skates and played rep hockey, have been told the same thing, and you've probably said this as a coach, you can't control the outcome, the one thing you control is your effort. The, the thing that these players have been talked to and told from day one of their career is put an effort in. And then you get to this thing where you can sell your sport. And, and Don, forget even if you even if you're a player and you don't think oh, I don't care about selling my sport, you should because the more you sell your sport, the higher the revenues go up, the higher the salary cap goes up, the more you can make. So even if it's a an entirely selfish motive, I just I I, I can't understand why you would intentionally go there and just try and do nothing and look like you're giving the least amount of effort possible. It would be interesting to see if. Um the NHL brass have the same opinion as you and I. You know, hopefully they're not fine with it because they're getting hammered on all kinds of social media on how bad it was. And that can't be what they wanted. But maybe they said, look, go out and have a good time. Don't hurt yourself. There was no chance somebody was going to hurt themselves. No, they were going to get frostbite in their feet from standing so still for so long. That's it. Um, I, I, I don't even know why you bother. And I, actually, that's not true. I know why you bother. I know why the league does it. It's a giant schmooze for all of its sponsors and everything else. And you can make some money by selling tickets. And 
blah, blah, blah. But I, don't even have the game then. Honestly, Don, would would we have missed anything if the game had been canceled and they said, let's have a skills competition and we're going to put big prizes on each of the skills competitions? Um, yeah, I think people can appreciate the skills competition. I know the NBA, a lot of people look forward to the slam dunk competition and the various ways to show off how good you are. Connor McDavid going eight for eight on the um, target shooting. Yeah, I think people then have a little bit better appreciation of the actual skill these guys have. But maybe you kind of, maybe you stop it there. I don't know. I I, I don't know. Um, Remember Showdown? Remember Showdown, the thing they used to do in the intermissions back in the 70s? So you bring back Showdown. And even then, that was like, I love Showdown. Maybe that's just showing my age as a kid. But here's the thing, too, Don, that this is not the NBA. This is not the NFL. Most of the guys, even though these are the best players in the league, most of the guys are making, most of the guys in this game probably were making between 5 and $8 million a year, some of them less. So if you were to have a yeah. skills, so you're giving a million dollars away to the winner of the tournament. Well, what if you got $2 million so that you have seven skills competitions and each of the winners got $250,000. You know what? If you were negotiating your contract, $250,000 added on would be a big deal. So surely for $250,000, that would be worth trying. I would think. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. To not make a bit of an effort at. (laughs) Right. You would have to be pretty cavalier. I mean, even if you're making $10 million a year, $250,000, you know what? All you got to do is get their dad to call them beforehand and go, do you know how much money I make a year when I was working? Yeah. I make 60 grand a year. You can win this fastest skater competition and make four times what I make in a single season. And you know what? Even if you don't want that money, give it to my buddies. Right, like the, surely at some point you can find a way to motivate these guys. Now I don't know if a game, I don't know if they're ever going to motivate them in a game to do it because you're never going to have a guy throw a body check in, a, in an All Star game ever. No, you don't need that. You can you, you, your All Star game can be the ultimate skills competition. Like just let them go wide open. You don't need to hit. But how about some effort in passing and back checking and? Make a bit of an effort. Try and deke a guy. Don't do silly things. Just go flat out without running people over. That would be a lot of fun to watch. There's a lot of skill out there. And when you talk about the 250000 bucks and say that's what you get if you win this thing or if you win this segment of the skills competition, you know, forget about the money. How about a little bit of pride? Like how about caring about, you know, how you make out or how you do? But clearly that doesn't, clearly that's not an issue because they don't. They've shown that. They've, they've absolutely shown. And, and the pride thing, Don, if everybody doesn't care, then it's okay for you not to care. And in fact, if everybody doesn't care and you're the one guy who cares, you're going to look like the keener from grade six school who sits in the front row and puts up his hand for every question and you're going to get teased by all your colleagues. So you got to do something that inspires everybody that, you know what, it's, it's worth putting the effort in. 
Yeah, I guess you really can't sell it. it it's really a um, a sponsor's thank you. You know, all the sponsors go, they get tickets, they get to hang out with the players, probably play golf with them. You know what I mean? Like, that's really what this thing's all about. But from a fan standpoint, they should still, you know, put up some numbers, put up some effort. And I was thinking, you know, if you had the only people that would be eligible or maybe one team that goes, everybody has to be making less than a million and a half a year and watch if those guys try. That would uh, be that's what I mean. Yeah, those absolutely. Guys, these guys would lay it on all the time. First of all, to show off. Second of all, to prove they want to make more money. And uh, that would fire it up a bit. Yeah, or 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 have it as a um, I don't know. I'm just I'm spitballing as we're sitting here, but you know, have the, have the junior team against the pros, or have you know who knows what? It's just got to be something. It's it's the NBA game stinks. It's horrendous. The NFL is the worst of all, unquestionably. I mean, it was just a disaster. The NHL is a close second in the disaster department. There's just nothing redeeming about it whatsoever. While we're on that topic, though, I don't know if you saw on Twitter what Dominic Hoshik had to say. I did. So Dominic, here's, here's Dominic Hoshik's quote. The NHL has, now this, keep in mind, this is a Hall of Famer, uh, not a, a usual basher of the NHL. The NHL has sunk to rock bottom, and he wasn't being funny here. Letting Ovechkin's son perform on the ice at the NHL All-Star is spitting in the face of approximately 500,000 killed, fi- 500,000 killed uh, thousands injured and tens of thousands of kidnapped Ukrainian children. The NHL and Gary Bettman must pay for this heinous act. He was really sour that Alex Ovechkin was allowed to be bringing his kid on, and frankly, that Ovechkin was even there. And forget the All-Star game for just a second, Don, although clearly that's what spawned this. When Alex Ovechkin came to Toronto the other day to play against the Leafs for the, with the Capitals, some people raised this. What should the NHL do? Alex Ovechkin's Instagram account right now, still, Alex Ovech, Alexander Ovechkin official, it's got a little blue check mark, is a picture of him with Vladimir Putin. All this time after the war has started, he is still posing with Vladimir Putin, who by every account now is a war criminal. What do you do if you're the NHL? How do you possibly, even as he gets closer to beating Wayne Gretzky's goal-scoring record, how do you possibly celebrate a guy who seems like he wants to be the villain? I don't think he wants to be the villain, and I, he wouldn't know me if I stepped on his hand. Uh, my thought process on why Ovechkin still has his picture up there, because he's scared to death to take it down. He'd probably love to take it down. If he could talk to him, he's going, I'm not taking it down. I mean, those guys, <laughs> uh, Putin had, could have them taken out. I mean, that's how they operate. You know what? You take down your entire Instagram account then. And then it's that's no okay. question, then it's no question because the whole account is gone. I think that's his only way out. I thought about it because, you know, I read about it and you heard about heard about it like everybody else did that, you know, why don't we deny him access to Canada? Um, and then what's that position? Does that put the U.S. in? If he can't be here, then, you know, he shouldn't be there. But I'm thinking he's scared to death. He's not taking Putin off his, uh, off his uh, Twitter and Instagram page. He's, 
he's worried. And probably rightfully so. Maybe he's had some influential people tell him, don't you dare take it down or close your account. I don't know. But I know that they don't seem to play by the same rules as we do. But it does seem to me anyway, regardless of the circumstance, it does seem to me to be a a conundrum for the NHL to be celebrating potentially and fetting a guy who is palling around with the most hated man in the world. Uh, absolutely, you're right. There's no doubt about it. It's an awkward situation for the National Hockey League and probably Ovechkin. Um, by all accounts, seems like he has a lot of fun out there, and the guys enjoy him. But that doesn't mean much, right? I mean, they're they're um, they're they're not very popular right now, and rightfully so, they're not very popular. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We bring Don Robertson back in. Um, I never introduced Don. Don is. Uh, the guy who runs ComChoice Realty and the Dundas Real McCoys and all kinds of other things. I got so invested in getting right into the whole thing about the all-star thing that I forgot to tell you who he was in case you're new here. So anyway, um, Don, we were talking about, uh, as we were saying, we are talking about the all-star game and every year at the all-star game, Gary Bettman gives sort of a state of the league address and then does something with Ron McLean on Sportsnet or CBC or whatever else. And one of the things that came out was a number of the players were asked their thoughts on what would you do to tweak things a little bit? And of all people, Sidney Crosby, who, you know, I, I, I think based on what he's done and based on where he stands in the pecking order of all time players, he, he should probably have a voice that is heard. If Sidney Crosby speaks, I think probably somebody should listen, or at least consider what he says. Sidney Crosby says, I'd like to see the playoffs on each side go back to one versus eight as opposed to this convoluted system we have right now. And when asked about that, Gary Bettman essentially, without giving it a moment's thought, says, no, we like where we are. Too complicated. Seems totally uncomplicated, but too complicated, forget it. Is Gary Bettman too dug in now after 30 years as commissioner to be able to make any kind of changes that might be worth doing? No, I don't think so. Um, and I always feel like when we talk about Benton, I'm defending him. But I, I try and be practical about it. Um, first of all, when Crosby said one versus eight, he means the East and the West, right? Yes, yes. No, he doesn't mean dropping it down to 18. Okay. So No, on each side, first, first place all, team finishes the last team that gets into the playoffs to play seven onward. Yeah, that way. Yeah. So Gary Benton... Um, is very well thought of by the people that sign his checks. And he has 32 people he has to keep happy. And if they're happy, he gets very well reimbursed for doing his job. And, and by the people I've spoke to that know him and have worked with them, they, they think he does a great job. I don't think any of them are having him over for dinner but they like the job he does as the commissioner of the National Hockey League. With respect to Sidney Crosby coming up with that and uh, Bettman being as smart as he is, that's pretty much the answer he should give when in reality he walks off the stage and says to somebody, see if we can sort this out. But on the spot, 
he's not going to say, you know what, I really like that. I think we'll change it. Way too smart for that. But you have to take a look at it. And I don't think it's that complicated. But he could have even said but, that, though, Don. He could have even said, look, I can't give you an answer right now, but if Sidney Crosby says this is something, you know what, we, sh- we, will, we will take a look. As opposed to simply saying, nope, no, not, not, not going to happen because it's way too complicated. It, it, to me, it was just, it was so dismissive. And when you're a league that according to reports that came out last week before the All-Star game is seeing a 22% drop in U.S. viewership, I don't know that you can be in the position to say everything is hunky-dory, A-OK, running along, just tickety-boo, we don't need to change anything. No, I, I don't. Uh, I don't disagree with that, and it, it does. It it does stray dramatically from their idea of building rivalries like the Metropolitan Division, which you only need a bus to go from one team to the other, right? And so it, it does. It does get away from that ideology, which presumably presumably they put a great deal of thought in before they came up with it, and to kind of throw it in the garbage doesn't matter, but. Here would be my argument. If the league is doing as well as they say it is, and by the way, I hear Phoenix is almost selling out all of their games now. Almost. <laughs> all 5,000, yes. <laughs> yeah, if, if, if the game is as successful as and I didn't see his address, he probably said it was, then it doesn't matter if Toronto play Montreal or Toronto play Tampa or Toronto pick play Carolina. It, none of that matters because if you're drawing well, your home fa- fans will come out and support you. You don't need to fill the rink because the Toronto Maple Leafs or the New York Rangers are coming into play. Uh, New Jersey should fill it with Carolina and vice versa and throw them all into the mix. So if the league is healthy, doesn't matter who you play, the home Home team should sell out their own building now. Well, and maybe Gary Bettman is looking at this from an entirely different metric than you and I are. We're looking at TV ratings and whether or not uh, rivalries are being built. He's looking at, I think they said today there were, or yesterday, there were 15 groups bidding for the Ottawa Senators. And rather than $600 million, which was the price they initially thought it might go for, expectations now are that it's going to go for over a billion. So if you're looking at it from that perspective... Everything is totally fine. Why would we change anything? It's where you're looking at well, it from. Remember where I kind of started from? The 32 people that pay his yep. salary are quite happy with him. And I'll tell you, if he can get a billion dollars U.S. for a franchise that Ron Joyce tried, offered $50 million for, they're going to be carrying Gary Bettman around and he'll be working for the NHL as long as he wants to. How do you hate that? I don't how think do you do. You get, how do you get a billion dollars U.S. for a franchise that in all likelihood loses money? Yeah, I, I don't... Th- okay, so my, my point though is, Don, and you're, you're 100% right. If you're the owners and you look at that, you go, that's fantastic. But are the two things mutually exclusive? Does the fact that the... Ottawa Senators might be selling for a billion dollars and the fact that fans would like and players would like to see a different playoff system, for example, do those things have to, do they, can they not exist together? I think you can do both. That That's the point. Well, I don't know that one overrides the other. 
Well, I, I, and, and this won't surprise you. I've not sat in on a NHL board of governors meeting. I have in the American league, but not in the national hockey league. And I would suspect that if somebody brings that up and said, Hey, you know, should the kid said, and Batman's at the podium and says, we've looked at it. We're not doing it. Yeah. But I think you should think about it. Yeah. I just got you $1.2 billion for the Ottawa Senators. What else do you want to talk about? Yeah. And that maybe. would likely end the conversation. Yeah. Right? Like it's, it would be nice to, to want to do what Sidney Crosby said. You and I talked about it. It seems to make a lot of sense. And then there's a better chance your best two teams will be there. Yeah. Like four, four of the best teams in the East may play in the first round. Toronto, Tampa, Boston, um, Florida. And so, and, and, and Don, we got to take a quick break here, but you mentioned right off the top, part of the plan for the whole system they've got right now is they're trying to build rivalries. Do you believe that after playing each other how many times in the last few years, do you believe that Toronto Maple Leafs' biggest and angriest and most passionate rival right now is the Tampa Bay Lightning? No, I, no, I think no. this sets it sets fear into Toronto Maple Leaf fans. No, that's, that's fine, but I think that if you were to say who is Toronto's biggest rival, there are a whole bunch of teams that a lot of Leaf fans would say before Tampa. Who Who is the team that you truly hate? There's a lot of teams that people would say in Toronto who are Leaf fans that they hate before they would say the Lightning. But, Scott, a small point is they don't care about the Toronto Maple Leafs rivalry. Uh, they get an obscene amount of money for every single ticket and every cup of beer they sell. They're worried about rivalries in Tampa versus the Panthers and Carolina. They're not worried about Toronto yeah. and Montreal. They say they're worried about rivalries. They are, but where they choose to be concerned about. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. For those who don't know, and that would probably be most, uh, Don and I have known each other since about 1990 when I was working in Brantford at a newspaper and Don started a league and a team, the Colonial Hockey League, with the Brantford Smoke playing out of the Brantford and District Civic Center. Uh, All of Don's hair at that time was brown. He had a tremendous well, what some might call a porn star mustache at the time, uh, and a winning hockey team. But he, and we have known each other since then, and we've, um, we've kept up over the years, and Don has done lots of great things, and, you know, on and on and on. But, Don, you know um, the Brantford market as well as anyone, having had teams there and uh, played against teams that have been there, and... We now know that the Hamilton Bulldogs are going to, for at least three years, going to be setting up shop in Brantford, maybe longer than that. What is your expectation of whether or not Brantford will take to that team and show up and make it difficult for Michael Andlauer, the owner of the Bulldogs, honestly, to decide what to do when those three years are up? Um, Brantford's a hockey town. Um being home of uh, Wayne Gretzky doesn't hurt. I thought you were going to say Eddie Mia. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I assume that's what we were going to talk about when you played Smoke on the Water because mm. that was the theme song of the Brantford Smoke. So, yeah, I've 
I've been lucky enough to uh, win an Allen Cup with the Brantford Modical Models in 1987, formerly the Flamborough Modical Models. And uh, then we started the Brantford Smoke in the Colonial Hockey League, as you pointed out, won a championship there, a minor pro championship. Both those teams played the sold-out buildings, and you can get about 3,700 people in there. It's a, it's a, it's a less than a two-four short of seating 3,000 people, and uh, I'm not surprised they have to spend eight, nine million bucks to bring it up to standard because, you know, the old clock is, I think, original, but. To get to your point, I think they're going to put a lot of lipstick on that thing. If you and you won't remember this because you're not old enough. In 1967, when the building opened, it was home to the Pittsburgh Penguins training camp. Yep, I, I know those they, stories. Yep, and well, of course, working in the sports department of Brantford. So, um, I think there's a lot of tradition. When we started the uh, Colonial League in like 1990. It was not well thought out from a business standpoint because we were in the midst of a less than spectacular economic time. And Brantford had just just lost not long before uh, Massey Ferguson which and White Tractor, which are huge employers, and all the spinoffs from that. But that plant now, that complex, the Massey plant, is very diverse. Uh, Brantford's economy is as good as anybody's in Southern Ontario because of the collapse of, of the Massey plant and white tractor and all, all that type of thing forced them to totally diversify. And I'll tell you, it's, it's very popular. Um, everybody said to me when we had the Brantford smoke, because they closed Market Street, for those that don't know, they built an Eaton Center in the parking lot and cut off, uh, the arena area from downtown. And I said, I think if you give them something they want, they'll come. And then in the playoffs, they did. Then they opened the casino, and the parking lot's full all the time. So people will go places if they want to be there. And I, quite frankly, expect that the Hamilton Bulldogs will sell out every game they play there. Okay, and so let's say that happens. And, and this is the question that has a lot of people concerned. Let's say they sell out every game. It's a great atmosphere. The city of, Br- of Brantford is behind it, which it sounds like they are. The mayor, when I talked to him on the phone, was almost giddy with excitement at getting a team there, and he wants to have a team full-time. Uh, the city goes out of their way to make things work for the team, on and on and on. Let's say all that stuff happens. What do you do if you're Michael Andlauer when three years is up and you can bring your team back to Hamilton where you have, to to describe it kindly, you have not always seen eye to eye with the city leaders uh, and you've got an arena that's frankly way too big for you, even though it'll be pretty much brand spanking new. What do you do, Don? What would you do? I, I don't know, but if, if, if my prediction is right, and I, you know, it's, I, I, I'm not always right. I mean, I can think back to 74, I was wrong. But uh, <laughs> it, it may not sell out every night, but it's going to be, it's going to do very well, I think. And I think then, and here, here's the one that will probably make a difference to Michael Andler. The city council will start talking about building a building. And the, one of the reasons they're going to talk about building a building is I can presume, but have nothing to back it up on, that when they go into Brantford, that Bulldogs Foundation that, that 
re, uh, feed so many uh, uh, children in the city of Hamilton through the Bulldog Foundation and do stellar work in our community. If they start doing that in Brantford, the pressure to keep the Bulldogs in Brantford will be immense, and it could be a groundswell, and the city itself may say, St. Catharines have done it. Um, a lot of communities in southern Ontario have done it. We're going to build a six or 7,000-seat arena. I don't think you'd ever renovate that one. I think you'd put it in the mm. north end. We talked about doing that with the smoke. I think they're going to make it very difficult for Michael to consider leaving. Some of it, some of this stuff will be based on how the corporate community support it. Yes. And I think there's enough there because you look at Owen Sound and you look at Guelph. Well, Brantford's as thriving as any of those, and it's as bigger, bigger than Peterborough, and they make it work. So I think the city of Brantford, if this thing goes well, will put a real push on to put a building up. And they've opened their arms to them. And here's the part that everybody says, oh, they'll be back. They'll do this. You know, he's mad now. But, well, I, you you know Michael Andelar. I know Michael Andelar well enough to think that it's going to take a couple minutes for him to get over this. And if Brantford have an OHL franchise, his territorial rights will determine if and when Hamilton ever get one. Hmm. And I don't, and I, I told some people in the city that and explained it to them because I thought Burlington was going to be an option. Still but could be. They will control, they will control territorially who can have an OHL team in Hamilton or if they can. And, you know, all they have to do is give them a call and say, you know, uh, we're on such good terms. We'd like to bring this OHL franchise into Hamilton. Could you help us out? There is, uh, before we go, um, and, and like I have not, and I don't think you have discussed this with, uh, with Michael Ann Lauer, this particular point, but your idea about Narina, um, if Brantford shows up, as you describe, and, and this is a huge success, and if the city of Brantford were to ever think about doing this, keep in mind, Michael Ann Lauer already once offered to spend $30 million of his own dollars on an arena here in town. So let's say that $30 million offer still stood. And let's say an arena costs, I don't know, $80 million to build of that size. I don't know what it would be, but let's, let's say $80 million. Brantford has a casino fund from their casino that gives the city several million dollars a year that isn't tax dollars, that is just spin-off money from the casino. If he were to put in 30 and suddenly now 10 years of casino money is... $50 million, there's your 80. And it didn't cost the taxpayers anything. No, I'm, I'm, I, not, I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm simply saying those who say that it's an absolute done deal, absolutely no question he comes back here, I, I, I'm not sure that's exactly right. I think he will, but I would say I could see some scenarios under which it becomes more of a difficult decision. I think I think he and Brantford, Michael himself, by investing the money he's going to invest in their building, and if he leaves after three years and gives them the three million back, um, and wise enough that it, the renovations at, at uh, First Ontario were two years, wise enough to set three years uh, aside because what are the odds of it being done in two years? 
I think the city of Brantford and 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 uh, the surrounding community will make it a very difficult decision to leave that city, hmm. and it will not be a slam dunk that he's uh, panting at the door waiting to come back. Because of everything I've read and heard is true, it doesn't seem like he is happy with the way he's been uh, dealt with. We got to go. Uh, you know what? One of these one of these Mondays, we'll have to do an hour of uh, of Branford smoke stories um, because you could feel just starting with the pink Chinese food restaurant, um, which uh, uh, that's a longer one. But yes, we'll we'll do that one of these days. Don Robertson, thanks for the time today. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. I enjoyed it. Have a good night. Uh, as I say, that is Don Robertson. You can catch him every Monday. We will do this one of these times. He Don has stories. There are stories. Some of them we may have to tape it and play it later after hours for it to fit within the confines of the CRTC. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.